Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is the opening chapters of Douglas Wilson's When the Man Comes Around, a commentary on the book of Revelation, narrated by Douglas Wilson. Listen to the full audiobook available now on Canon Plus. Introduction Now, some might say that only a madman would attempt to write a commentary on the book of Revelation. But having gotten this far, the only thing that remains is to try to brazen it out. On eschatological subjects, my debts to various writers are too great and numerous and are spread over too many years for me to express my gratitude either adequately or accurately. But I would be remiss if I did not mention my obligations to Ken Gentry and Gary DeMar, whose writings on eschatological subjects have been a great help to me over the years. A different kind of commentary by another writer-editor deserves special mention. Steve Gregg put together a parallel commentary called Revelation for Views. This was an enormous help to me. There are four basic schools of thought when it comes to interpreting Revelation, and Greg did the remarkable work of summarizing the views of representatives of all four schools in four parallel columns all the way through the book of Revelation passage by passage. Those four views are historicist, preterist, futurist, and spiritual. The outlook represented in this commentary is the preterist, but I was greatly encouraged by how much I learned from the text from representatives of all four views. While not sharing the final conclusions of the three other schools, it was a great blessing to still be learning from the same inspired text together. And I would like to pay this blessing forward. Even if you, the reader, do not come to share my interpretive grid as we work through this vision together, my hope is that we would be able, despite the disagreement, to love the Lord's appearing together. May it not be said of us that the millennium is a thousand years of peace that Christians love to fight about. Douglas Wilson, Advent, 2018 Chapter 1. The Size of Hailstones the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass, and he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. Revelation 1, 1 through 1-3 Throughout the book of Revelation, the earth has many plagues that rain down upon it. Over the last 2,000 years, Revelation has itself been treated to nearly the same number of interpretations, some of them the size of hailstones. In the course of this study, we will endeavor not to do any of that ourselves, at least not on purpose. The first thing to note is that the book of Revelation is a revelation, an unveiling. It is intended to make things manifest, and so any scheme of interpretation that serves to obscure is an interpretation that should be suspect. This is a revelation. Secondly, it is a revelation of Jesus Christ, of and by him, meaning that any interpretation that leaves him out of it should also be suspect. God gave this revelation to Jesus Christ, who in turn signified its truths by his angel, who was sent as a messenger to John, who in his turn showed what was given to the Lord's servants. John gives his account of the word of God, he testifies to Jesus Christ, and he also narrates for us what he saw. The things he saw are described as things that must shortly come to pass. Taxos, speedily, quickly, swiftly. This means that Revelation is largely concerned with events of the first century. These events were upon them, which John tells us twice. These things must shortly take place, and the time is at hand. Believing this to be a revelation, and not an obscuring, we should expect the fulfillment of the vast majority of this book to occur within a few years of the time it was given. The operative word is soon. With this assumption, many details within the book swim into focus. 
John ends his preamble with a blessing. The blessing promised is for those who read, those who hear, and those who keep. Kings and priests with him. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Grace be unto you, and peace, from him which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 1, 4-6 John is writing to the seven churches of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and these churches are subsequently named in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. They are the churches of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. More will be said about each of them in turn. The standard Christian blessing at the beginning of a New Testament letter is grace and peace. That greeting is used again here, grace to you, John says, and also peace. Usually in the other epistles of the New Testament, the grace and peace are said to be from the Father and the Son, causing some to wonder why the Holy Spirit is unmentioned. Jonathan Edwards suggests, and I think he is correct, that the Spirit is not usually mentioned by name because the Spirit, proceeding from the Father and the Son, as the Nicene Creed says, is the grace and peace. Now, if that is the case, this expression of it is a significant variation. The grace and peace are cited as being from three sources here, not just two. The first is presumably the Father, the one who is and was and who is to come. Second, there are seven spirits who are said to be before the Father's throne. The seven may indicate fullness or perfection, or it may be a way of communicating that the grace and peace to the seven churches are from the seven spirits, that is, the Holy Spirit. And then third, the grace and peace proceed from Jesus Christ, who is identified in three ways. He is the faithful witness, martyr, he is the firstborn from the dead, and he is the prince, archon, of the kings of the earth. In pondering the meaning of the seven spirits, it is worth remembering what Isaiah says, quote, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. The Messiah will come, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. 1. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. 2 more. The Spirit of counsel and might. 2 more. And then we have the spirit of the knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, two more, seven in all. A doxological blessing is then declared concerning Jesus Christ, unto him who loved us. He is the one who loved us, and he is the one who washed us from our sins in his own blood. The verb for washing here is striking and clear. The image used by hymn writers, that of being washed in the blood of Christ, is therefore a biblical image. This is the same one who, after that cleansing, made us kings and priests together with him. He is the one who should consequently receive glory and dominion forever, and an amen is added to it. The Coronation of Christ Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. Revelation 1, 7 and 8 this is a good place to note that Revelation is simply saturated with citations from the Old Testament. This short passage takes material from at least two places, and those places help throw light on what John is talking about here. Coming on the clouds is from Daniel 7.13, and looking on him whom they have pierced is from Zechariah 12.10. In Daniel, 
The coming on clouds is not the second coming, but is rather the coming of the glorified Son of Man into the throne room of the Ancient of Days. It is a reference to the ascension, not to the second coming. John has just finished telling us that Jesus is the archon of the kings of the earth, which is what happened at the ascension. When Jesus approached the Ancient of Days, he was given full and complete authority, dominion, and glory. He was given a kingdom such that all people, nations, and languages should serve him, in short, everlasting dominion. The ascension was his coronation as archon of the kings of the earth. Revelation is a description of how he began that reign 2,000 years ago and how his reign would culminate at the end of all history in the appearance of the bride from heaven. In Zechariah, the prophet describes a day in which the people will see the one they pierced and how they will mourn for him. That day is described as a day in which the spirit of grace and supplication is poured upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This is a description of Pentecost, when the Spirit was literally poured out upon them, in that city, to that extent, and with that effect. We are enabled to see the Lord's approach to the Ancient of Days through the preaching of the Gospel. This is what it means to declare the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We are enabled to see Him as pierced through the preaching of the Gospel. This is what it means to portray Him as crucified. We are enabled to mourn for our sins through the preaching of the Gospel. This is what it means when the one who is pierced pierces our hearts. As John says, even so, and amen. We do not need to marvel at how such things can be accomplished through the folly of preaching, because the heart of the message preached is a person. He is the first and last, the height and the depth, the Alpha and Omega, the one in whom we live and move and have our being. It is appropriate that he was given everything by the Ancient of Days, because he himself is the one who is, who was, and who is to come. Before Abraham was, I am, he said. Threefold Fellowship I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Revelation 1.9 The writer identifies himself simply as John. He is traditionally taken as John the Apostle and for good reason. Although Revelation is a completely different genre from the Gospels, the close kinship between this book and the fourth Gospel is plain. He describes himself two ways. The first is simply as brother, the second is companion, a rendering of synkoinonos, a partaker together with. The apostle is a brother together with those to whom he is writing, and he also fellowships together with them, partaking together with them in three things. The first bond of their fellowship is tribulation, the second is the kingdom, and the third is perseverance. All three are connected to Jesus Christ. They are the tribulation of Jesus, the kingdom of Jesus, and the endurance of Jesus. John was on the Isle of Patmos, a small Greek island in the Aegean. He was exiled there, as he says, for the word of God and because of his testimony of Jesus Christ. The word for testimony is martyria, which is related to our word martyr. A martyr is one who witnesses or testifies to what he has seen or experienced. Because faithful martyrs have often had to seal their testimony with their blood, the word has come to mean one who dies for his faith, as Antipas did, Revelation 2.13. But the witness who is willing to go to the point of death begins witnessing a lot earlier than that in the course of his life. The spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus, Revelation 19.10. John was exiled to Patmos for the testimony of Jesus Christ, and while he was there, he was given the revelation of Jesus Christ. In the Spirit on the Lord's Day I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day and heard behind me a great voice, as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches, which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. Revelation 1, 
10 and 11. John begins to tell us the beginning of the vision. He had been exiled to Patmos, and on a particular Lord's Day, he was in the Spirit. This tells us, incidentally, that there is a day set apart for the Lord, the first day of the week, the day he rose from the dead, which is to say, Sunday. John was in the Spirit, which is to say he was in a trance, capable of seeing the vision that he saw. While in that condition, he heard a great voice behind him, and he turned and looked. This is something we see later in Revelation. He first hears, then turns, and looks at what he heard. Revelation 7, 4, and 9. The speaker behind him had a great voice, clear as a trumpet, and he identified himself as Jesus Christ. The way he did this was by calling himself the Alpha and Omega, the first and last letters in the Greek alphabet, and then repeating it another way by saying he was the first and the last. John is then given his commission. He is told to write down in a book what he sees in the vision, and then he is to send that book to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Those seven churches, in order, were Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. In our midst, and I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girded about the paps with a golden girdle. Revelation 1, 12 and 13. John has heard a loud voice, a voice like a trumpet. He turns to see who is speaking, and the speaker is obliquely identified as the Lord Jesus. The first thing John saw was the collection of lampstands. These lampstands are identified just a few verses down as the seven churches of Asia, to which John is writing, verse 20. This vision of the Lord includes a number of vivid descriptions that run into the next verses, which we will get to shortly, but for now it should simply be said that the one who spoke, telling John to write to the seven churches, was the Lord himself. He is identified as one like a son of man, which is how the Messiah is described in Daniel 7.13, when he was presented before the Ancient of Days and was given universal dominion, Daniel 7.14. The thing that should be emphasized here is that the seven lampstands are the seven churches, and the Lord was standing in the midst of the churches. He identifies with them, he stands with them, and as we shall see, he holds their pastors in his right hand, verse 16. He walks among them. A voice like many waters. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like undefined brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. Revelation 1, 14 and 15. A vivid description is given of the Lord Jesus, and in true apocalyptic colors. He wore a long robe down to the feet. The color of the robe is not specified here, but he had a golden sash around his chest. Both his head and hair were white, strikingly white, white like wool, white like snow. His eyes were fiery flames, and his feet were like refined brass just out of the furnace. His voice was like the sound of many waters. The golden girdle around his chest indicates priesthood, Exodus 28.8, although the Lord Jesus held a priesthood much higher than that of Aaron. His head and hair were white, not like the whiteness of skin, but a pure white. In the next verse, verse 16, we see that his face shone like the sun at full strength, so it was a penetrating whiteness. Picture a sun that is white, not yellow. Feet that are like burnished bronze also show up in the Old Testament. The feet of the cherubim that surrounded the throne of God had feet that color, Ezekiel 1.7. And the angelic messenger that came to Daniel was very much like this, Daniel 10.6, in a number of particulars. His face was like lightning, his eyes like torches, his feet like burnished bronze, and his voice was like many waters. John is clearly describing the Lord with terms previously used for one of his great servants. Having a voice like many waters is not an unusual scriptural trope. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east, 
and his voice was like the noise of many waters, and the earth shined with his glory. Ezekiel 43.2 Such a voice sounds like thunder, Revelation 14.2, and later on John says that it sounded like a huge multitude, or a great thundering, Revelation 19.6. When we open our Bibles to read the Word of God, or attend worship in order to hear it declared, we should feel like we are standing on a rocky beach near the base of Niagara Falls. God's Word fills all the available space. A profound mystery. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. Revelation 1.16 The description of Jesus Christ continues in the same vein. Here we learn three more things about him. That Jesus holds seven stars in his right hand, a sharp two-edged sword comes out of his mouth, and his face shines like the sun in its full strength. The messengers of the churches, their angels, are described under the figure of stars in the Lord's right hand. The image is one of the Lord's presence with those churches. The lampstands are the churches, and the stars are therefore their pastors. Verse 20. If the angels were heavenly emissaries, this would be an odd way to describe them. The entire scenario portrays the Lord's identification with the churches, and in this case with their pastors. The pastors are stars, and this is said to be a mystery. This ties in with the next description. The word angel simply means messenger. It is used, of course, of heavenly messengers, but it is also a word that describes human messengers. For example, John the Baptist is said to be an angel, Mark 1-2, and these angels are also men assigned to the churches. But as messengers, they do not have the authority to come up with their own messages. They do not speak on their own authority. They are heralds, men commissioned to announce what someone else has told them to say. And this is how they are pictured here. Jesus is the one speaking. When Christ speaks to the churches, the double-edged sword comes out of his mouth, and his ministers are held in his right hand as he preaches. This is what gospel authority means. Jesus speaks the word while he holds the men speaking it. A few verses later, the pastor at Pergamos is told that this is where his authority lies. To the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. Revelation 2.12 Later in Revelation, the two-edged sword, representing preaching, is associated with the rod of iron which Christ will use to rule the nations, Revelation 19.15. This rod of iron is prophesied in Psalm 2.9, and the Lord wields it through his servants, Revelation 2.26 and 27, but the Lord himself is the one who holds it, Revelation 12.5. The bridal city is described later as having no need for a son because her bridegroom is that son, Revelation 21.23 and 22.5. That reality, as later described, is foreshadowed here. The Keys of Death and Hades. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and of death. Revelation 1, 17 and 18. Understandably, when John saw this vision, he simply collapsed. The vision was overpowering, and John fell down, virtually dead. But the Lord, for he here clearly identifies himself as the Lord Jesus, laid his right hand on John. This is the same right hand that holds the seven stars, who are the pastors of the seven churches in Asia. When the Lord touched John with his right hand, his first words were, Fear not. The vision preceding provided ample reasons for collapsing, but the words that follow were the Lord's encouragement to rise up and write. The vision was overwhelming. The words were enabling. The reasons for gathering himself together were these. Jesus is the first and the last. He is the one who was alive, who died, and who rose again from the dead to live forever. This was sealed with a solemn amen. In addition to everything else, the Lord Jesus, on account of his descent into Hades, 
and his resurrection from that place, was the possessor of the keys of both death and Hades. The word rendered as hell in the AV is actually Hades. This is not Gehenna, the place of final condemnation, but rather Sheol, Hades, the place of the dead, where Jesus preached to the disobedient souls from Noah's era, 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20. Jesus is now the Lord of death, the conqueror of Hades. What will happen next? Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Revelation 1.19. John is then instructed to write down what he has seen. Revelation has many time stamps within it, but it also has some time hints, like this one. John is told to write what he has seen, the things that are happening in the present, and the things that will occur after that in the future. He is not told to write down what has happened, what is happening right then, and then to hit the pause button for 2,000 years or more. The expectation clearly is that the things hereafter are the things that will be unfolding in the immediate future. This is supported by the timestamps that occur elsewhere in the book. 2,000 years ago, the things described in this book were going to happen soon, Revelation 1.1. The Lord was coming soon, Revelation 3.1. The Christians of that era were warned about what must soon take place, Revelation 22.6. The Lord was indeed going to come and fulfill His words soon, Revelation 22.7 and 12 and 20. This same reality is assumed in this passage. Write down what you've seen, what you are seeing, and what you will see right after this. Why the Angels Speak The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Revelation 1.20 The last verse of this chapter may be considered the introduction to the next two chapters. In this section of Revelation that is opening up, messages are being given to the angels of the seven churches of Asia. Remember the Lord Jesus was standing in the midst of seven lampstands, Revelation 1, 12, and 13. He held seven stars in his right hand, Revelation 1, 16, and a sharp two-edged sword came out of his mouth. In this verse, we are given the meaning of the mystery, and in the two chapters to come, we will see how the Lord exercises this ministry. So we know that the seven lampstands are the seven churches, and that the Lord Jesus was walking around in the midst of his churches. The seven stars that he held in his right hand are the seven messengers, or pastors of these churches. The sword in his mouth is his word, which he gives to the successive pastors in the upcoming passages. So this is how it works. Jesus speaks, and then he tells John to write what he has spoken. The implication is that the angel of the church is to speak what he has read. So Jesus speaks, John writes, the angel reads, and the angel speaks. Chapter 2. Men Who Were Sent Under the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Revelation 2.1 We have come to the introduction of the passage where the Lord speaks to all seven churches through their appointed angels or messengers. He has a word to speak to the church at Ephesus, and so he writes to the messenger of that church. The message to the angel and the message to the church are identical. God speaks to his churches through his appointed and ordained servants. The word angel need not refer to what we would call an angelic or celestial being. John the Baptist was called an angel, Mark 1.2. Human beings are called angels in the Old Testament also, Job 1.14, Isaiah 42.19, Malachi 2.7, Malachi 3.1. And the word is used by Luke to refer to ordinary messengers. Jesus sent messengers, angels, before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him, Luke 9.52, cross-reference 7.24. 
Now, of course, it is possible that the angels of the first chapters of Revelation are celestial beings, but in my view, this creates many more problems than it solves. So, in the preamble to the message to the pastor of the Ephesian church, the Lord reminds him of the context. That man is not receiving a private word or a private revelation. This comes from the one who holds seven stars in his right hand. And as he is speaking to one of them, the reminder is that there are six other messengers there with the pastor. The Lord who speaks this admonition to Ephesus is the same Lord who is walking in the midst of seven lampstands. The Lord ministers, in other words, within a community of churches. What he says to each, he says pointedly to each, but all of them are invited to take warning from what he says to each. The Lord is praising and admonishing these churches in public. The saints in Laodicea and Philadelphia will know what was said to Ephesus and vice versa. The Missing Element I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. Revelation 2, 2 and 3. In many ways, the church at Ephesus had their act together. When the Lord begins to speak to them directly, he commends them heartily at first. This was the church that had received the magnificent epistle to the Ephesians, and the Apostle Paul had labored there in Ephesus for a few years. They had internalized the teaching, and they were faithful in their defense of it. The Lord commends their works, their labor, and their patience. Another item of praise, and one that modern churches need to pay close attention to, is the fact that Jesus praised the intolerance of the Ephesian church. They could not bear those who were evil. They tested certain false apostles and found them to be false. They were a hard-working church. They had to bear a great deal for the sake of the Lord's name, and they did so with patience. They persevered in this labor and did not give up. But that does not mean all was well. Their works were sound, but something was missing, and that threatened to ruin all. Life in the Midst Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Revelation 2, 4-7 through this pointed admonition to the Ephesian church is filled with balanced tensions. The message began by praising them for their works, but rapidly comes to the point of urging them to return to the works they did at first. He tells them here that they have abandoned their first love. The word translated abandon admits of numerous legitimate translations. I think one of them that makes good sense of the context is that they had grown slack in their first love. Combine this with the word he uses to remind them of where they had fallen from. Given this description, and that lack of repentance would result in the lampstand of the church being removed and the extinction of the Ephesian church, we see that the situation was very grave. Their love was seriously unhealthy, but their hatred was still sound. The Lord commends them for that. They hated the works of the Nicolaitans, which the Lord also hated. We don't know who these followers of Nicholas were or what their works consisted of, but we know that they were hateful. Their works contrasted poorly with the works that are commended in the Ephesians and to which the Ephesians were summoned to return. The dismaying condition of the church at Ephesus was found in the fact that they were orthodox in their hatred, but not in their love. The one who had an ear to listen was invited to listen. True listening means obeying and returning to the works that were powered by their first love. This is what it means to overcome. 
and the one who overcomes will be given fruit from the tree of life located in the midst of the paradise of God. Paradise is defined here as being where the tree of life is. We see later in the book that the tree of life is located inside the New Jerusalem, which is the bride, the wife of the Lamb, the Christian church. Revelation 22.2, 22.14 The tree of life is in the midst, mesos, of the paradise of God. The Lord Jesus walks in the midst of the lampstands. Revelation 1.13.2.1 The tree of life is where the Lord Jesus is. Poverty Camouflage And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead, and is alive. I know thy works, and tribulation, and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them, which say they are Jews, and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Revelation 2, 8 and 9. The second message is delivered to Smyrna, a city about 50 miles north of Ephesus. Remember that John is on Patmos, an island to the southwest of Ephesus, about 63 miles away. The Lord Jesus identifies himself here in two different ways. The first is by saying he's the first and the last, the protos and the eschatos, the beginning and the end. He encompasses all of human history. He contains it all. Not only does he contain all human history, but he established himself as Lord in the very middle of it by his resurrection from the dead. He identifies himself as the one which was dead and is alive. We will see in chapter 3 that Smyrna provides a sharp contrast with Laodicea. Laodicea has a name for being rich, but is actually poor. Smyrna goes the other way. The Lord knows their poverty, but adds that they are actually rich. The Lord knows their works, their trials, and how they have camouflaged their spiritual wealth with poverty. The saints at Smyrna also had to contend with false Jews who were guilty of blasphemy. The word blasphemy has two basic senses. One means railing against God, saying vile things about him, and the other is slanderous accusation against God's people. Given the context here, the blasphemy was probably directed against the church at Smyrna by Jewish persecutors. But John goes on to add that such people claim to be Jews, but are not. They are actually members of the synagogue of Satan, whose name means adversary. Faithful to death. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt with the second death. Revelation 2, 10 and 11. The church at Smyrna was standing at the edge of persecution. The Lord encourages them in that place by telling them not to fear what they are about to suffer. This implies two things. One is that they will in fact suffer, and the other is that in Christ they have no need to fear. The specific persecution they faced was going to be stirred up, by the devil. Some of them would be thrown into prison so that they might be tried or tested. The tribulation would last for ten days. We can assume that it was going to end in death for some of them because the Lord promises the crown of life for those who would be faithful to the point of death. The one who has an ear should take heed and hear. This is what the Spirit is saying to the churches, plural. The second death is something that should be feared, and those who are faithful through the first death need not fear it. We do not have any extra-biblical record of a persecution there lasting for ten days, but there's no real reason we should, because this persecution is said to come from the devil, and the unbelieving Jews were identified as the synagogue of Satan, it is likely that this would be a persecution arising from these unbelieving Jews. Dwelling Where Satan Dwelt And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he, which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is, 
and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. Revelation 2, 12 and 13. The church at Pergamum was a church that was already experiencing persecution. In the course of these letters, the Lord has been warning all the believers in Asia Minor of this impending reality, but in some places it had already begun. Pergamum was one of those places. John says that Satan's seat was there, which is likely a reference to emperor worship. Even though the emperor was in Rome, the most organized location for emperor worship was in Asia Minor, where these seven churches were. The cult of Rome had been planted in Pergamum as early as 29 BC, and there was no quicker way for the Christians to prove their lack of patriotism than to refuse to go along with worship of the emperor. The church there was characterized by a faithful witness in the face of hostility, and John mentions one martyr by the name Antipas. The church was characterized by the same faithfulness that Antipas had shown. This was a sound church, a faithful church. There are two striking things about these words of exhortation. The first is that Satan is mentioned twice. He had his seat there, and he made his dwelling there. But the same thing is said about the believers there. John says that they dwelt where Satan's seat was, and that Satan dwelt there. In other words, these faithful Christians dwelt where Satan dwelt, and hence the conflict. The other striking thing is that both sides are armed. We don't know how Antipas died, but we know his blood was shed. He was killed. But how were the Christians armed? In his address to the persecuted church, Jesus is described as the one who had the sharp double-edged sword. In the earlier vision, we saw that his sword came out of his mouth. That meant that the pagans would fight with material swords, and the Christians would fight with the sword of Christ, the word of God. Jesus promises to fight the Christians. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Revelation 2, 14-16 The church at Pergamum had done well against the hostility of overt persecution. Even when Antipas was killed, they stood firm. But that does not mean that the church was above criticism. The Lord had a few things against them, and it pertained to what they were willing to tolerate in their midst. We know the content of the false teaching that had some presence there, but there are two ways to read what we call it. The Ephesian church had a commendation from the Lord in that he hated the deeds of a group called the Nicolaitans. In Pergamum, their problem was that they tolerated this same group. Now here are the two ways to read it. One would say that Pergamum had a problem with two false groups in their midst, those who followed the teachings of Balaam and those who followed the teachings of the Nicolaitans, whatever that was. In spite of much speculation, we don't know the particular sin of this group. The other possibility is that the Nicolaitans were in fact the group that was promulgating the error of Balaam. That is how I am reading it here. Balaam was not a Hebrew, but his prophetic gift was genuine. In the Old Testament outline of the story, Balaam was hired to curse the Israelites, which he refused to do. But there are hints that he then took Balak aside and gave him some off-the-record counsel on how to use their women as a weapon against Israel. This advice was taken, and for a limited time, was very successful. The New Testament is more explicit about Balaam's sin in this than is the Old, and this is one of the places. Balaam taught Balak what to do, and it was a way of luring the Israelites into idolatry by means of fornication. The women of Moab offered themselves as bait, and so Israel sinned at Baal Peor. Numbers 25.3 The church at Pergamum had some people there who were of the party of the Nicolaitans, who were essentially offering the same thing. The Lord declares that this is something that he hates, 
He summons the church at Pergamum to repent of their tolerance. If they do not repent, he will come to them quickly, and he will fight against them with the sword of his mouth. Notice that the word of Christ, the double-edged sword that comes from the mouth of Christ, is a weapon that is deployed against a Christian church that has lapsed into a tolerance of sexual immorality. The word translated as fight here is polemeo, the word from which we get polemics. Jesus promises to fight the Christians. The White Stone He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Revelation 2.17 The letter to the church at Pergamum concludes with one of the most personal individual exhortations in the Scriptures. The general invitation is given, whoever has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. The Spirit speaks to the churches corporately, and all Christians are invited individually to hear. To the one who overcomes, which is to say, to the one who is born anew, regenerate, born again, God promises to give him hidden manna. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. 1 John 5, 4. The victory that overcomes the world is our faith, and it is by faith that we receive the free grace of justification. The only one to whom this happens is the one who is born of God. If a man is born of God, then he overcomes the world. If a man is born of God, then he receives the hidden manna. What a curious phrase. In order to be manna at all, it must come from heaven. But the manna in the wilderness fell on all Israel. Those with true faith and those with no faith could see it equally. But to the one who is regenerate, God gives hidden manna, manna that only he knows about. This hidden manna is Christ himself. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna, and are dead. He that eateth this bread shall live forever. John 6.58 Mark it well, you are not saved without the hidden Christ. This glorious truth is then given under another image, but an image that was closely related. And the manna was as coriander seed, and the color thereof as the color of bedelium. Numbers 11.7 Bedelium was an aromatic rosin, but it may also have been the name of a precious stone. Genesis 2.12 Manna was the color of bedelium, which was apparently white. If so, this is likely the white stone that is referenced here. And here is where the true individual consolation comes in. To the one who overcomes, to the one who is born again, God gives the hidden Christ and a new name that only God and the beloved saint know. But God gives no new name unless he is first given a new heart. A Messenger And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes, like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. Revelation 2.18 Thyatira was about 128 miles from Patmos, where John was exiled as he wrote these exhortations to the cities. What he wrote was delivered as a circular. From Ephesus, you would work northwards towards Smyrna, and from there to Pergamum. At Pergamum, the route would turn east and head toward Thyatira. After Thyatira, the course would run southeast through Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. All the churches, and Patmos also, could fit inside a circle with a radius of about 86 miles. The city was not a great sophisticated city, but rather a working town, home to manufacturing and consumer guilds. Lydia was a merchant in purple goods, and although she was converted in Philippi, she was from Thyatira. Acts 16.14 His feet were like fine brass, which is how the feet of the four living creatures in Ezekiel are described. Their feet were the color of burnished brass. Ezekiel 1.7 This language is particularly taken from the vision of the angel that Daniel saw, Daniel 10.5 and 6. The man there, clothed in linen, is like the vision of Christ in this place in two respects. In both places, the eyes are described as flames or lamps of fire, and the feet are described as brass. 
apart from anything else the imagery might mean, it certainly means that the messenger is from God and that his words must be obeyed. Jezebel in your church, I know thy works and charity and service and faith, and thy patience and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Revelation 2, 19 and 20. The church at Thyatira was an industrious, hard-working church. In speaking to them, the Lord begins by commending them for their labors. He uses a number of overlapping terms to do so. He praises their works using that word twice, once at the beginning and the other at the end of the list. He commends their works and then their love and their faith and their steadfastness and then their works again. The works at the end of the list were greater than the works at the beginning. Their labors were growing in volume and intensity. The church at Ephesus worked hard also, but had fallen from their first love. The church at Thyatira was given over to ever-increasing works, but they were also commended for their love, agape. All in all, they appeared to be a healthy church. But there was a problem. A woman who was a false teacher, styling herself as a prophetess, was seducing servants of Christ, the Lord calls them my servants, into fornication and into participation in idolatrous feasts. She was here given the pseudonym of Jezebel, after the Phoenician queen who introduced Baal worship into Israel in the time of Elijah. The charge against the church at Thyatira was that they tolerated her. The sin is the punishment. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. Revelation 2, 21-23 Jezebel was a false prophetess who made room for sexual license among her disciples, a doctrine that is too often an easy sell. She was a professing Christian and was part of the church there in Thyatira. The Lord's judgments are not always immediate. In this case, he had given her a warning and time to repent of her fornication, but she did not take advantage of the opportunity and refused to repent. Sexual immorality is not just a sin for which there will be judgment later. It is a sin which is in itself a judgment. The sin incurs a judgment, and the sin is a judgment. In Romans 1, it is the wrath of God that gives men up to unrighteous desires. The mouth of strange women is a deep pit. He that is abhorred of the Lord shall fall therein. Proverbs 22:14. We find something similar here. Those who commit adultery with Jezebel will together with her be pitched into great tribulation, unless, of course, they repent. They will suffer greatly and Jezebel's children will die. But note that all these consequences for the adultery, which are judgments, are the result of what happened in the bed of adultery, and it was the Lord who cast her into that bed. The Lord is the one who judges the heart, as we would put it. In the authorized version, it says that God searches the reins and hearts. This is a reflection of the Greek original. Reins refers to the kidneys, which, according to the ancient Hebrew metaphor, referred to the innermost part of a man. God sees all our actions all the way to the bottom layer and he is the one who judges us according to our works. Sinful Toleration But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which ye have already hold fast till I come. Revelation 2, 24 and 25 Jezebel was tolerated in Thyatira, and this was a big problem. It was a problem for her and for her followers because they were going to be chastised by the Lord directly. It was a problem for the leadership at Thyatira because they were the ones who put up with this contagion in the church. 
The Lord promises to parse the situation out in accordance with the works of each one of you. The next word is a bit more encouraging. The toleration of Jezebel was a problem, but the Lord continues to talk to the church leadership, apparently, along with the rest of the saints in Thyatira, the ones who had not been corrupted with this licentious teaching. It is interesting to note how John references how these false teachers describe their own teaching as, quote, the depths of Satan. They were apparently peddling some sort of deep heavy, and the Lord will have none of it. He says that he will put no additional burden on them. I take this to mean that there is no additional task beyond the implied task of no longer tolerating Jezebel. No additional labor is necessary. Get rid of that woman and hold on tight until the Lord relieves you. The Reward of Persevering And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father, and I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Revelation 2, 26-29 The church at Thyatira was having trouble keeping the corruption of the nations out of the church, but the Lord calls them to faithfulness and urges them to overcome and keep his works to the end. For the believer who does that, God will give him authority, exousia, over the nations. In short, exercising dominion within the church, according to the word, will result in dominion in the world. In the second psalm, God promises that the Christ will be given a rod of iron to rule over the nations. And here, the Christ promises that the overcomer will share in that rule with him. As the Christ received authority from the Father, so also will the servants of Christ receive authority from him. And it is all, at the root, the same authority. That rule is not all sunshine. The nations are sometimes shattered in the process. Jesus came, after all, to set the world on fire. Luke 12:49. To the one who overcomes, God will give him the morning star. This is simply the gift of Christ under another figure. Christ is the morning star, Revelation 22:16. The one who is able to hear needs to make a point of hearing what the Spirit says to all the churches. If you enjoyed this episode, check out the full audiobook available now on Canon Plus. Just click the link in the show notes and start listening today.